Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. I am so excited that you're here and listening to us today, and I have got a great guest for you, particularly if you are uh, a food allergy mom. So this is Ilana Gallant. She is a marketing and PR executive, an attorney, and the founder of the Food Allergy Fund. Also, a mother of a toddler. She's four now, right? Four and a half. With, with food allergies, which I'm sure... Uh, she's going to tell us all about. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm super excited to hear your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So your whole foray into the food allergy world started when your daughter had her first reaction, right? Tell me all about it. She was 13 months when she was first diagnosed. It was a fine Sunday afternoon. We had given her peanut butter, which we had done on multiple occasions prior to that. And she had an anaphylactic reaction. And my husband and I sat there embarrassingly Googling symptoms of an allergic reaction. I know no more than I ever expected to know about food allergies, but we literally sat there Googling, debating for 30, 45 seconds as her face was swelling, hives were spreading. Um, and then we obviously sought medical attention, stopped Googling. And that was my introduction to food allergy. And over the course of six months, kind of between the age of 13 months and 18 months, she just tacked on food allergy after food allergy. And I was getting having more reactions. Yes. It was like a switch had flipped. um, And I was getting increasingly frustrated as a parent that I couldn't do anything. I felt totally helpless and short of going to medical school myself. I thought, well, what can I do to get to the bottom of this to get answers? You know, I was taking her to all the top doctors and no one had answers for me. And three years into this, we still don't have answers, right? No one has answers. And that is fundamentally the problem. And as the numbers have been skyrocketing over the past 15 to 20 years, research dollars have not been going to this problem. And we're looking to change that. And there's a ton of research dollars going to other, um, you know, diseases and medical issues, not that they're not important, but that have far fewer people affected. For sure. I mean, the patient population just keeps doubling uh, roughly every decade. And I, anecdotally, it feels like that number is even higher. It's now one in 10 adults and one in 12 kids. And that number will continue to creep up if we don't figure this out quickly. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about, um, you know, I'm not a doctor either, right? But I end up spending a ton of time talking about food allergy testing. It seems to be kind of the bane of my existence. As you well know, there's no diagnostic test for food allergies, and uh, I feel like there's a lot of time and effort spent on um, food allergies that aren't really food allergies, if that makes any sense. Like, your daughter's had reactions, you're avoiding those foods. I'm sure she's tested positive to a bunch of other stuff, right? Um, Do you avoid those things also, or do you go based on the reactions that she's had? No, we go based on clinical reaction. I mean, the diagnostics are so flawed, false positives and false negatives. And we've had our share of experiences with both. um, And that's what makes the whole process so challenging. I mean, food challenges are incredibly taxing for the child, for the family. Uh, It's antiquated. Um, Somebody would say it's... Let's roll back a little bit because you and I both have similar experiences, right? You with your daughter, me with me. Um, both false positives and false negatives on the testing. But let's explain to the listeners a little bit what it is that we're talking about. So there's a couple different types of tests that you can go have. Most people get the scratch tests. 
right? Allergists love the scratch tests because they're, they're particularly effective for environmental allergies, particularly ineffective for food allergies. Then there's the blood test, but neither of those are any good. What are you, what have your experiences been with those two types of testing for your daughter? Uh, flawed. Um, <laughs> you know, we've done skin testing, we've done blood work, we've had inconsistent results between the two. Uh, we've had consistent results and consistent, you know, false negatives and then given her a food and she reacted on contact. And so it's really impossible basically to rely on those diagnostic tools. And so you're left with a food challenge as your only option. Um, and that is and don't try that at home, dear listeners. Food challenges are something that should only be done in the context of either the doctor's office or the hospital. Um, don't don't try that at home. I can't I can't kind of stress that enough. Just out of curiosity, what does she test false negative to? For me, it's shellfish. I have never tested positive for shellfish. By far, my worst reactions. Sesame for her. Yeah. It's insane, isn't it? I mean, they say that it's sixty percent false positives with allergy testing. I don't, I've never heard a statistic around the false negatives, but so I just call it incalculable, but I don't know if you have more information than I do on that front. No, I mean, I've never heard of a statistic, but I think, you know, relying, whether you're a child or an adult patient, I think people have a spidey sense for foods that they're allergic to. Like, I do think there's some sort of sixth sense element when we'd have bagels around the house and there's a sesame bagel, she would scream. She wouldn't touch it. She would just scream. And I kept telling doctors, well, she screams anytime there's a sesame bagel around. And kind of, I would be told, well, that's not a diagnostic tool. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that. Anecdotally, you know, a lot of people who have food allergies that are onset as an adult, they end up being to foods that they didn't like as kids. Like they had some kind of, I don't know what the right words are, mental aversion to those foods. For me, yeah. that's how tree nuts are. I never liked them. I, I grew a little bit attached to cashews as I got to be older, right, and was kind of more willing to try more things, but um, I've, I've never been a tree nut fan, and lo and behold, allergic. I've never been a pork fan, lo and behold, allergic, right? So it makes me wonder, you know, you kind of know, right? I like the way that you put that. You've got a spidey sense about it. Um, I, I, I often use that when people are asking me about their food allergy testing. All right, I tested positive for 27 foods. What do I do? I say, well, Start with the stuff that makes the most sense to you. And it's a better way to put it, the way you articulated it. You kind of have a spidey sense about it, right? What are the things that you see on that list? And you go, oh, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think you have to trust your gut. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, all right, so, so all of this frustration that you and I have both experienced, and I'm sure people out there hearing this conversation are going, holy smokes, like I understand exactly what it is that they're talking about. You channeled this frustration into something super duper productive. Tell me all about Food Allergy Fund. Yes. So I created the Food Allergy Fund about two years ago. Um, as I mentioned, kind of born out of frustration that I couldn't do something. And for me, the missing link, as much progress as, as we've made around awareness generally, is research, right? We don't know what's causing this. It's strange to be living in a pandemic and talking about an epidemic, but food allergies are an epidemic um, in a technical sense. And so I decided, well, I'll create a research foundation and decided if I can't do this, I can't figure out where to put the money, I'm going to rely on the best brain trust that I can possibly assemble. And so before I even created the organization, I came up with my wish list of 
top doctors and scientists at every major research institution across the country from Stanford, Yale, Columbia, Mass General, um, and everywhere in between, and started cold calling and saying, I have a vision to build a nonprofit research foundation dedicated to food allergy research, specifically looking at what is the underlying cause so that we can get to improved treatments and a better understanding. Um, and much to my amazement, everyone said, yes, sign me up. And I went, you know, I kind of figured go big or go home. I work full time. I, you know, I have a child. I figured if I'm going to do this, I have to do this at the best possible level. Um, and so that was really the start of the organization. And we are entirely volunteer staffed by design so that 100% of the money that we raise can go to research from individuals. If I'm going to ask a family to donate $5 or $5,000, I want them to know that that money is going to research. It's not going to overhead. It's not going to staffing. And so that's been a really core part of our vision, our mission, um, and really differentiates us in many ways. And so what we're focused on is funding research and encouraging collaboration and innovation in the food allergy ecosystem more broadly. And that, that's the entrepreneur community and the research community. And those two communities often you know, intersect as well. Uh, but we are focused on how do we surface the best thinking, the brightest thinking, bring the best minds together to figure this out. Yeah, do uh, the, the research uh, team that you guys kind of have assembled as a part of the Food Allergy Fund, do you focus mainly on anaphylaxis or the additional food allergic diseases, if you will, as well, like the eosinophilic diseases and um, you know, oral allergy syndrome, things like that? So we have a scientific advisory board that reviews proposals. Um, we don't have a, a research team that we've assembled per se. Uh -huh. So we have a scientific advisory board that reviews proposals that have come in. We have at this point funded projects related to IgE, you know, mediated food allergy, um, but we have experts. Anaphylaxis. Yes, um, but we do have experts on our board who are expert in EOE and OAS and, you know, the psychosocial impact of food allergy, the intersection with asthma. Um, so we're trying to take a holistic comprehensive approach so that when we do fund a project, we have the multiple perspectives. Yeah, I mean, you got to think that all those things are related in the background, right? I have eosinophilic esophagitis, which we lovingly call EOE, um, although I can now spell that. Who would have thought? Uh, it's got to be related somehow, even though it's a different system, if you will, that's reacting. It's a different type of reaction. It's It would just be crazy that they're not tied together somehow, you know, deep down in the immune system someplace. I'm in that. I strongly believe that all of this is tied together in the gut, um, in the microbiome. If you look at the increase in food allergy, in juvenile diabetes, in autism, in you know various diseases that we view predominantly as childhood disease, so food allergy is very much no longer a childhood disease, they all follow the same hockey stick kind of uh, over the same period of time. And so there has to be a common denominator among the diseases that seem to not be connected. What, uh, where do you think that like pesticides or GMOs or something like that falls into that kind of anecdotal set of evidence and hockey sticks? I think it's a perfect storm in many ways, right? There's the hygiene hypothesis, there's the increase in C-section, there's antibiotic use, um, 
there's food manufacturing, but I think all of these have been contributing factors. It, it didn't happen overnight. No. I mean, I think it really was building probably over 40 to 60 years and it didn't start with our generation. It started with our parents' generation. We're just seeing the accelerating effects of it. Um, you know, when I was growing up, I maybe knew one, I'm in my late thirties, I knew one or two people with food allergies. And now if I look at my friends, you know, who are friends from all parts of my life, not my food allergy friends, but just my friends, probably 50 to 60% have at least one child with food allergy. And so that is startling um, and, you know, should, should make us really concerned about what's going on. It's interesting though, right? I mean, even if you just look at the statistics, you mentioned earlier, one in 10 adults, one in 12 kids, and you talk about, you know, your friends have 50 to 60% of them have a child with food allergies. That means that 50 or 60% of those adults also, right? I mean, we've got more adults who have food allergies and yet people are constantly talking about it with regard to kids. Um, We find that, right? When we're, you know, calling into different restaurant companies or different hospitality companies, oh, well, we don't have a lot of kids that come through. Okay, that's nice, but you must have adults. You know, I think that there's a lot of focus around food allergies in kids, but, I mean, the sheer numbers say that the adults are, are you know, the more tactical problem. Yeah, and I think as, you know, the numbers increase, right, especially, you know, kids 15 years ago, 20 years ago, who are now entering the workforce, I think that will really kind of increase the awareness and make people realize this is adults too. Uh, I mean, it's it's 10% of adults, it's one in 10 adults, but I think that for it to be more palpable, you kind of have to have that um, within the workforce. The other interesting thing is obviously, you know, I started this because of my daughter, but we are focused on research just on the core problem. We're not focused on kids or adults. Um, looking at sort of how how to move forward on this from an awareness standpoint and make sure that it's not seen as a lifestyle choice from it which is a huge i think problem for food allergy uh, and we've Amen. lost a lot of time because it's you know a lifestyle preference it is not i mean no one would choose to ever live with a life-threatening condition um by choice And so from a messaging standpoint, that's something that we need to really change. And from a business impact standpoint, you know, the consumer pressure around it, I think is really going to start changing because my four-year-old dictates all of our consumption from the airline we fly to the restaurant we eat at, to the foods we buy at the grocery store. And so unlike other diseases where the patient is affected and kind of the multiplier effect of a household consumption or from a group of diners, right? If you have five people going out to dinner, the person with the food allergies is going to dictate where you go to dinner. And that's really, really important for businesses to start and to understand that like, not only is it the right thing to accommodate allergy customers, but it is good business as well. Yeah, it's a huge part of the wallet share. And we, yeah, we call that the veto vote. Um, you know, the food allergy person virtually 100% of the time gets to decide where it is that the whole entire group goes out to eat and not just go out to eat, but fly and go on vacation. And all of that dollar is determined by the food allergy person. It's a great point, And I appreciate you bringing it up. Um, talk to me a little bit about your nonprofit. You've, have you ever started a nonprofit before 
you started this? No, never. I mean, I've been involved in various nonprofits, just, you know, as a, a citizen, a, you know, civic minded person, but I had never run a nonprofit. Um, I've, my entire professional career I've spent in the for profit sector. And so I really treat the Food Allergy Fund, although it is a nonprofit, as a kind of for-profit mentality, meaning we have a strategic plan, we think about how to allocate resources, branding, you know, strategy, all of my professional skill sets kind of come into play. Yeah, I mean, so this is the first business that I've ever started to sort of start. Uh, what do you find that's like harder than you thought it was going to be? What's unexpected? What do you, you know, what are the kind of the mistakes that you've made that, um, you know, the second time around you would correct? That's a really great question. Um, you know, fundraising, right, is, is always tough. Um, asking people for money is not easy. You have to be comfortable with it. And I've gotten much more comfortable with it over time. Uh, and now it's like, I have to do it, right? Um, so that is something that I think is true for all of our volunteers. Like we're so passionate about it because we're personally affected either as adults with food allergies or parents of children um, that we're very committed and we're very passionate, but making that ask is, is not always easy. Uh, even though people have you know, asked for money for candidates in campaigns or for other causes that they care about, um, raising for something that is so deeply personal and health related is not, it's not always easy. Um, but that, you know, we've, we've learned and we've all gotten more comfortable with it. I'd say organizationally, you know, I'm so marketing and PR focused that I'm always thinking through that lens. And I mean, I'd say imitation is the greatest form of flattery. I've seen many of our ideas, you know, adopted by peer organizations. And I think that's great, right? It's, uh, it, it means that we're changing the conversation, changing the way of doing things for the better and really bringing innovation to the entire food allergic community. How does that fundraising go for people who aren't affected by food allergies? People get, you know, kind of hit up for money for great causes across the board all the time. I can see where when you call someone who's been personally affected by food allergies, that that conversation is significantly easier um, how do you how do you how do you explain to people how important this cause is, uh, and why it is that they should part with their hard-earned dollars with you rather than with you know an organization for a different cause? Yeah, I mean our individual and corporate fundraising are, are different. Um, our individual fundraising is largely people who are personally affected or one degree of separation, right? It might be an aunt or uncle, it might be a grandparent, a next door neighbor, but someone who has that personal connection and can really deeply appreciate how life altering it is. Um, the corporate conversations are very different. I mean, I've spent the better part of my career uh, getting money from Fortune 100 brands. And so I've done it before. This is the hardest um, ask I've ever had to make because fundamentally it comes down to a lack of understanding. Right. It's like, oh, well, schools are not free or it's not a big deal. EpiPens exist. Why should we care? And it's really hard for companies, you know, even when they are um, doing good things for the food allergic consumer. Right. It's not core to their business strategy. And 
getting them to see, okay, not only the patient population, but the multiplier effect that we were talking about earlier as like, you know, incredibly powerful relative to other diseases, right? When someone has cancer, sadly, like, of course it affects the immediate family, but it's not going to affect every consumption decision and, and getting businesses to see it that way. And the multiplier effect of, okay, we're talking about probably at least 350 million people globally and you multiply that out, even if you multiply it by three, you're at a billion people. And how do you get businesses to start thinking that way is really, really important that this is a billion person market, right? If I, if I went to a company in any of my other uh, professional hats and said, hey, I have a market of a billion people, like people would be really interested. And somehow we can't make that connection. And so that's a story that we're working on every single day. Um, our summits are really core to that strategy as well. So debunk those things for me that you mentioned, right? Schools are not free. EpiPens work. Um, and then one that we talked about, you know, a little bit earlier, lifestyle choice. Talk to me about, explain to our listeners about why those are kind of not complete answers. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not a lifestyle choice, right? It is a life-threatening disease that someone is affected by, and the switch can flip any time in your life to any food. And I think that's really important. I almost feel like everyone should carry an EpiPen at this point, um, because you don't know when you could develop a reaction. They should certainly is. be on every wall next to a defibrillator. Exactly. And we're not there yet at all. Um, you know, s- schools until very recently didn't stock EpiPens or epinephrine uh, and unless you had a designated device, um, but it should be in every public space. So that's one, it's not a lifestyle choice. Uh, EpiPens work when used at the right time um, and they're not 100%, but kind of using it in time is, is really, really important. Uh, and schools being nut free, I'm, you know, my daughter goes to, has been to two nut free schools, theoretically, and at both schools, you know, someone brought in Honey Nut Cheerios and said, oh, I didn't realize that has nuts, it's just Cheerios. Well, it's not just Cheerios. Um, oh, and there's allergies that are not just nuts. I feel like there's a false sense of security around nut free schools or tables or whatever. I feel like it, it perpetuates the stereotype that every allergy has to be a nut. Exactly. Now, I mean, sesame is the fastest growing allergy in the United States. And hummus became the new peanut butter in schools, right? Because that was the way to replace the staple peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And now you have the fastest growing allergen is sesame. You have kids with milk allergies, you you know, um, egg allergy, et cetera. So So unless you make schools food free, there's no way to do allergy-free schools, right? That drives me crazy as a designation, allergy-free. Even when different snack foods or whatever label themselves as allergen-free, I want to throw it out the window, right? I have a not top eight allergen. Your daughter has not top eight allergens too. Mustard, if I recall. Um, Sesame, obviously, although maybe we'll get that into the top nine sooner rather than later. Strawberry? Do I remember that right? No, not strawberry. Okay, I'm mixing you up with somebody else. But there's, you know, there's other allergens that she's dealing with. And, you know, to call something allergen free, again, false sense of security. What are we doing here, folks? No, any food can cause 
a food allergic reaction. Yeah, I mean, reactions have been documented for 170 foods. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever even consumed more than like 50 foods. I'm sure I have. But, <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, but 170 at least known reactions. I just met someone this week who's allergic to eggplant and pineapple and nothing else. Well, that's not top eight or 12 or 15 or 20. Um, that's exactly why Star to Star exists the way it does, right? Because I got mad that it was hard to have a pork allergy. Essentially, I mean, that's like if you really had to net it out to like one sentence, that's why we exist. You know, we deal with any allergy on the planet, whatever it is. We don't care in any combination. And we're the only people who do that. And it's exactly for people like that. My best friend is, has a pineapple allergy. One of the girls that lives in the neighborhood has a cumin allergy. Um, and you just... The, all of us out there with non-top eight allergies are just completely discounted from the entire food allergy community. You can tell I didn't get enough sleep last night because I'm a little salty on this topic today. So, <laughs> but I'm so glad that you guys are doing or funding, I guess is the better way to put it, funding, you know, research around therapeutics and testing and other research topics that aren't just for the top eight. So thank you for that. Yeah, and you can't go food by food, right? Like if you look at cancer research, the research is done, you know, T cell receptors, mechanistic response, and then you apply those findings to breast, prostate, lung, pancreatic, you know, the various organs. And the food allergy research model has been the inverse. It's been, let's spend all of our money on peanuts. Well, that's one food. We can't extrapolate those learnings. And you know, our regulatory structure with FDA approval, if we have to go food by food, we'll be at this for three, 400 years. And we'll never get outside of the top eight. And yet the perception out in, you know, society general will be, oh, we fixed food allergies. That's not a thing anymore. Yeah, not helpful. So thank you for what it is that you're doing. Um, what, uh, you know, in, in nonprofit land, uh, if somebody wanted to, Go forth. I think it's so fascinating that you started a nonprofit. So I, I apologize for continuing to come back to this topic, but I just think it's really interesting. If somebody were really passionate about a particular cause, didn't find another organization really doing what it is that they want to do, what advice would you give? What advice would you give them on starting their own nonprofit? I mean, do your research, do your due diligence, figure out what it is that you think is really. Um, missing from the nonprofit community for whatever cause it is and then think about how you're going to fill that gap um, either because of you know new ways of doing things or bringing new people to the cause i think that's really important it's like figuring out how are you going to be complementary and additive to the other work that's already happening but be really kind of clear around what you're going to do that's different. Like, what is your value proposition? Because at the end of the day, you have to raise money, right? And so in order to raise money to sustain a nonprofit, you have to have a, a clear mission and purpose. Um, and I think either a new way of doing things and or a new network of people who are going to be tackling that problem. So if our listeners wanted to get involved with Food Allergy Fund, A, how do they connect with you online? And B, how can they get involved? Obviously donations, but what other opportunities are there for people to help you? Yeah, I mean, we're entirely volunteer staff. So everything from fundraising to programming for summits to digital content, everything is 
assembled by social media campaigns. Everything is put together by volunteers. And so we have a, a volunteer network across the country where we, you know, we're really proud of everyone who's involved and the friendships that have formed, kind of the, the support within, within our own community. Um, you know, follow us on social media at Food Allergy Fund. Go to our website, foodallergyfund.org. Sign up for our email updates. Get in touch with us you know, please reach out to me on, on LinkedIn, however you'd like. Uh, you know, I am always responsive and eager to connect with new volunteers. Good, great. And, you know, the, the I would love to get involved more. Thank you for including us in the summit this past spring, although it seems like it was, you know, 27 years ago. It was just at the beginning of this pandemic. Um, it was a pleasure to be a part of that, and I appreciate it. You know, please continue to keep us in mind. And if there's anything that we can ever do to be of assistance, we are here for you. The mission that you're on is incredible. So we did How to Connect Online. I like to end all of these episodes with two truths and a lie, and we're not going to reveal which one is the falsehood, if you will. So listeners, if you want to know which one of the following facts about Alana is not true, you're going to have to uh, reach out to us on social media or the comments um, in the podcast. So Alana, take it away. Oh, it's about me. I thought it was about food allergies. Uh, Either way, it works. However you want to do it is a-okay. Well, I mean, I think we should kind of stay on the topic uh, nearest and dearest to my heart. Um, So minor food allergies, um, there is no such thing. I think that is the biggest misconception. You don't know what one reaction will look like relative to the next. so when people say, I have a minor food allergy, no, that's that's a lie, that is false, that does not exist. Um, two things that I think are really important for people to know that don't get enough attention is, and we've touched on this a little bit, half of food allergies start in adulthood. And when we talk about kids, I care about this because of my daughter, but half start in adulthood and they can start any time um, and strike any time. And, you know, you can't use epinephrine too much. And I think that's really important for people to remember is, you know, epi fast um, when you need to, and you can't overuse it. And that really saves lives, but it's not enough. Uh, It's just the starting point. Yeah, prevention is the only cure. I would add to your list as long as we're having a list of that and advocate for yourself in emergency rooms because you get such a wildly variant reaction from, uh, you know, first responders. So make sure that you're advocating for yourself and and that you know what your reactions are like. Yeah. And advocating for yourself everywhere, right? Restaurants, gyms, wherever, airlines, wherever you are, you have to be your own self-advocate until we have better awareness. Yeah. I have bossed around my fair share of emergency room doctors. So uh, on that note, thank you again. I really appreciate you being here. Listeners, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You're listening to Shandyland. You can find us on any of the social media platforms at Shandyland. And I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Alana. Thank you, listeners. I hope you have a great day and we'll talk to you soon.